Well, good morning and I welcome you again. If you're visiting with us, we are glad that you're here. Um, and we are thankful that you, we have the blessing of your presence. So uh, you, as you're probably aware, I'm starting a new sermon series. I'm going to be preaching through the book of Luke. Now, let me tell you something. I probably could preach this book in about three years or four years, but I'm not going to do that. And you'll see today that I'm doing 56 verses, which, by the way, is a lot of verses to cover. So I probably, and I was talking to my wife about this, I probably could have preached about eight sermons on just these verses, but I'm doing it in one. So you're going to have to bear with me here. Um, At any rate, so the, the sermon series that we're doing is called Jesus, Savior of the World. That's the title of the whole series that we're going through through the book of Luke. And my intention is actually that I'll preach through Luke and then its companion, Acts, after we're done with Luke. So I figured you probably, it is, though it does comprise about 29% of the New Testament, um, I figured we probably didn't want to be here for five or six years. So we're going we're gonna to try to clip through this if we can. Um, so have you ever been in a terrible situation that you just wanted to end? For instance, a terrible day that you were experiencing and it's towards the end of the night and you just want it to be over. You just can't, for instance, get to sleep and you're staring up at the ceiling or you're just staring down at something and you say, when will this end, God? I just want this to end. You wait for the night to be over. You long for the dawn, for the sun to rise and hopefully in that next new day, you'll get a fresh start. This is actually the situation that the people of Israel were in. It had been over 400 years since the last prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Malachi, in that book, prophesied that the Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. But before that would happen, God would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And the prophet would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so this was in keeping with a prophecy that happened 200 years prior to that that said that this prophet would be the forerunner who would prepare the way for the Lord. And he would reveal the glory of the Lord and all flesh would see it together. You see, God was saying that through Malachi that God was saying through Malachi that his plan was in the works, that God had a plan, that he was going to do that plan. And one day, Jesus, the Son of God, would come, who is called the Son of Righteousness. And so, just before the dawn that brings the Son of Righteousness, a prophet would come in the spirit of Elijah, who would announce that the day was breaking. The dawn was there, and the sun was coming. So in our passage today, we're going to be looking at the dawn just before the sunrise. And we're going to see that Jesus is the great leveler who's going to save the world, especially those who are humble and in need. Now, 
in, I'm going to read this entire passage, but I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain a little bit about the point of the sermon series, what we're talking about. Then I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 to 4, but this explanation comes from verses 1 to 4. So you'll hear verses 1 to 4 where I came up with these things. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor James, why Luke? Why'd you pick Luke? Because, you know, I've been doing a sermon series for 26 weeks on something else, and it was we were kind of jumping all over the scripture, and now we're going into Luke, so why the book of Luke? Well, Luke said that he wrote it so that Theophilus, who was as a Greek name, so he might have certainty concerning the things he was taught. And so the purpose of preaching you this is the same. I want you to have certainty that the things that you have been taught about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the world, that you can have certainty that these are true. That was why Luke wrote the book. And this is why I'm preaching it. Because you might know what the story of the gospel is, but what Luke is doing in this book is showing you how these things are true. Now, who was it written to? So even though it appears to have been written to Theophilus, um, and, and by the way, Theophilus was more than likely a high official or a very important person who probably bankrolled Luke's trips and travels and everything that he was doing so that he could write this. Because you'll see as we read this that Luke went around and talked to actual people, eyewitnesses, Ask them who this Jesus was, what he did, how they saw him, and all of these things. And Luke is a historian. And so Luke is being bankrolled probably by Theophilus so that he can write a story so that Theophilus might know that the things he'd already been taught about Jesus are actually true. And now, it does, though, seem that it might have been also written with maybe a broader audience in mind, and quite frankly, probably not the Jews but mostly Gentiles or people who are non-Jews, he's focusing on them um, and, and trying to incorporate them in the story. But what's Luke's point? So Theophilus probably learned about Jesus' life. He learned about his death, his resurrection at a high level. And perhaps some of you too. Perhaps some of you have just learned about Jesus at a high level and not gone really deep and really thought about what happened and what, how true these things are. And so Luke writes to show that the truthfulness, this, the truthfulness of these events that fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that the apostles have been teaching as eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You have to remember, Jesus was an actual person. And by the way, there's not very many people in this world who contest that. Even scholars that aren't Christians say, yeah, there was a guy, Jesus, he lived, okay? So these are eyewitnesses that were with Jesus. And they were witnesses to the fact that Jesus lived, the fact that he actually died, and that they saw him rise again and go to heaven. And so Luke is a historian, and he is going to show the truth of what has happened by compiling an orderly account from meeting with eyewitnesses, like Peter and John, and probably consulting other sources like the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. In other words, Luke's Gospel is going to focus on getting all the details right and getting them right in order of how they happened. And so he's making sure that the, he interviews all the right people and puts all the events in an orderly manner. And this ordering actually should bring certainty into the minds of those who are reading Luke's gospel. Now bear with me. I'm going to read 
all this chunk of passage. Now, you might say, well, Pastor James, you're going to cut into the sermon time with reading all this passage. And I thought about that. But here's the thing. These are God's words, not mine. And so I take and try to explain God's words to you, but actually, God, His words are where the power is, not in mine. So it's intentional that I let God speak for Himself, and then I can try to explain it afterward. This is the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his house. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the son, and this is the sixth month with her who who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose arose, and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God is forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Father, we do pray that you would take the time that we have and that you would allow us to see this beautiful picture of what it is to see the light dawning, expelling the darkness, and to see how you work faith and belief in Mary and how you humble the proud and you exalt the humble. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty and wonder of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to try to get through this passage. There's a lot here, but I want you to understand that the way he starts off this passage is putting it into a definite time frame that you could go and look up in history. He says that this happened in the days of Herod, the king of Judah. If you were in the first century and you received this book, you would know that there was a guy named Herod in Judah. It was a time. He is using a time frame that actually existed. He's using a guy's name, Theophilus, who was a real person who probably bankrolled this thing. And his name is Most Excellent Theophilus. And so he's basically probably a noble or probably someone who is in some sort of politics or something like that. So we get this historical framing of the first two stories and a setup for the first response. So what I'm going to do is look at verses 1, verse 5 to 25. We've kind of already talked about verses 1 to 4 is this is a promised miracle that is met with unbelief by people of position. Okay? So imagine a person of position that everybody respects. He meets the news with unbelief. 
The second half we're going to look at from 26 all the way to 56 is someone who's humble, who no people don't really respect that much, and she meets this news with belief. So those are our two real things that we're trying to focus on today. So basically what we see here is I want us to meet Zechariah. He is a priest. He has lineage. He is well-respected. And this guy, Zechariah, has a wife named Elizabeth. And he is actually in a place where he's called godly, and his wife are called godly and righteous. So these are good people. Good people who hope in God, who are looking for the coming Messiah that's going to happen. They trust in God. I mean, Zechariah so much so that he's actually, it'd be kind of like a preacher, right? I mean, he's like in the church, he's doing, he's doing service, right? And, he, and, and he's actually going uh, at this time into the temple to, do, to, to, to deal with the incense, which is a representation of the prayers. But you have this problem that's set out, which is Elizabeth, his wife, is barren. She's an older lady. She hasn't had any kids. And there's no hope and at all for her to have a kid. That's what we're dealing with. And so this is where the story takes a turn. This couple is going to be told, at least Zechariah is, by a very important angel, Michael, by the way. Michael is a big deal. Michael was the one that we read about in Daniel. And Michael was coming to Daniel to tell him of a prophecy of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, coming to tear down the proud, to ultimately establish his kingdom in the earth. And so this prophecy was given to Daniel by the angel Gabriel. So for Gabriel to go to Zechariah was like, hey, we're at another really important part in God's redemptive history. And here is God's messenger who's right comes right from God's presence to tell Zechariah what is going on. So this is what this is the setup here. So he is the he is going to tell Zechariah basically that his prayers. Now you, you, you if you're like me, you might ask a question: What prayers? His, your prayers have been answered. Was it his prayers for a Messiah or his prayers for a child? Guess what's answered? Both. Because John the Baptist, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is the answer to them not having a child, and Jesus is the Messiah. So he had been praying for the Messiah and probably his child, and Gabriel kind of, I think, leaves it sort of generic. You know, when people, you know, when people say, well, which is it? And you say, yes. Right? That's kind of, I think, where we're at with this a little bit. So basically, um, the, 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 you would think, Okay, for them, that he's been praying that his, that his line, the godly line of the Aaronic priesthood would continue through him, and he's all but given up. His wife can't have kids. She's too old to have kids. So here comes Michael saying, hey, you're going to have a child. Now, let's say your wife was 60, 70, right? Or you are 60 or 70, and somebody comes to you and says, you're going to be pregnant, what would you say? The exact same thing Zechariah said. Okay? Let's not um, be too harsh on Zechariah. Okay? What is, what is his response to the angel? If you look at the passage, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Basically, in English, he said, I'm too old, my wife is too old, we can't have kids. 
So you're going to have to, I don't know how this is going to happen. You're going to, what, am I going to adopt? What are we going to adopt? What's going on? Right? And there's, this, there's a very real sense. Now, you might say, well, he's asking a question, but is he actually disbelieving? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Gabriel says, you disbelieved. So his question was unbelief. Now, Mary asks a question also, and I'll get to that later, but, what, but the angel doesn't say, you disbelieved. So, so Zechariah disbelieved by the way he asked the question. Maybe it was his tone. Who knows? You know, the angels are pretty smart. How, how can this be? Maybe he said it something like that. Real, maybe sarcastic. You don't know. But whatever it is, the angel absolutely knew that he did not believe. Okay? Now, he, he tells him that this name of this guy, this kid that's going to be born to him, is named John. Anybody know what the name John means? Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. That's a big deal. Because how is God gracious? By sending his son, by giving Zechariah a son in his old age. A double grace. Yahweh is gracious. You'll name his name John. And so, basically, um, God tells this amazing news to Zechariah through the angel. And um, the angel, Gabriel, says to John that this son would be a great prophet and would be used by God to make his people ready for the Messiah to come. He would be used by God, John, his son, Zechariah's son, would be used by God to preach the message of faith and repentance. And so Zechariah, as I said, hears the news, doesn't believe it. And this is the thing, guys. He is a priest. He knows the Bible. How many stories in the Bible do you know of women who had children after they were too old. More than one. He knows that God can do this. But the priest doesn't believe that God would do it for him. Right? This is the problem. He's unbelieving in this regard. Now, just because he's unbelieving in this regard does not mean that he's not a believer. Does that make sense? Just because you doubt God's goodness sometimes doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It just means that you need God's grace to help you. Now, hopefully, you don't get struck dumb, not able to speak like Zechariah when you're doing that, because that's what happened to him. Gabriel's not happy. Now, interestingly enough, why is it that he's struck so he can't speak? He has just heard this amazing vision that the, that the, the, the one promised in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 through around 6 or so, is supposed to come, and that the Messiah, the one who all the Jews were hoping for, would come. Why does he become mute? You know what the, you know what the answer to this is, I think? Because when he was done doing incense, do you know what he was supposed to do? Go out and pronounce a blessing on the people. He was not able to pronounce God's blessing upon the people. He would have done that in hypocrisy if he would have done that. And I think that God is saying, you did not believe the good news. If you read the passage, by the way, that he uses the term good news, and good news is euangelion in the Greek. That's the word for gospel. He's like, you didn't believe the gospel. 
the good news. Because John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus, the one who would save the world from their sins. And guess who didn't believe it? The priest. And how can a priest speak blessing when he can't speak the blessing of Jesus Christ? Because that is what he was delivered, the message of Jesus Christ. And if you cannot bless anyone without Christ, Christ is where all the blessings are found. And I'm convinced that the reason he couldn't speak was because he didn't believe in the, uh, in the, the Messiah that was coming through John and then Jesus at the time. At the time. He did believe after he was mute, by the way. Because we're going to see that next week. He really believes it. But it took him a bit, maybe six months after his, and eight months or nine months, and finally the baby's born. It's like, yes, what Gabriel said is true. And then he goes and extols the Lord. But the point is, is, is that you cannot give blessing. There is no blessing in this world. There's no blessing in life without Christ. Without Christ, all is misery and pain and suffering. Because Christ is the hope. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all the world. And so this is what's going on here, I think. And so he's, he doesn't pronounce the blessing. So just as Gabriel prophesied, his wife Elizabeth conceives a child. God has done two things. Taken away the reproach in society of Elizabeth being childless. And he's brought in the herald of the kingdom of God who would proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now a question I have for you right now. Do you believe that God has power over the natural world? Because this is where Zechariah's doubt came in. An old woman who has no physical ability to have children. God somehow comes in and restores her womb when there was nothing left in there. And she becomes pregnant. God over the natural world. Do you believe that God has power over the natural world? Can he bring conception to a barren womb? Do you believe this story and the many stories that we're going to see to come? Or do you think that this is just fanciful stuff? Ah, it's a good story. It's a nice little story. I don't know. The Bible, I can't trust it. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure if this is true. That doubt is what Luke is going after. He's saying, no, 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 no. What happened is true. There was a guy named John who really was born to a woman who was barren. There really is Jesus who was born the Son of God and that the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, which we'll get to momentarily. Will you believe the stories found in the book of Luke about the great and mighty God interacting in the world in miraculous ways to bring about his plan and purposes? Will you believe or will you be like Zechariah and doubt? And I would just challenge you, you don't want to be on the receiving end. If God's pursuing you and you're doubting, you don't want to be on the receiving end of God saying, well, I'm going to show you that I'm real. That is a very dangerous place to to, to be. You must believe. You must trust in God that he can do anything. Secondly, a promised miracle that's met with belief by the lowly. The next story is actually really astounding. It's the story of a young peasant girl from this know-nothing place, little town of Nazareth. 
that was so tiny that nobody, nobody thought it was a big deal. And actually, this is where Jesus grew up there. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, which Mary was from and Joseph was from. Um, and Nathaniel, when he meets Jesus, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Do you guys know any place in New Hampshire like that where you're like, nothing good can come from that place? Like, it's just this podunk place that nobody, right? There was places like that in Ohio that I, when I lived when I grew up. The point is, is that people believe that sort of stuff. And this is where Mary was from. So a young, poor peasant girl who had, like, nothing to offer, believes. And a priest who was important didn't. Can you see what Luke is doing? Can you see how Luke is saying that God exalts the humble? Can you see how Mary is just a picture of Christ? Christ, the king of the universe, would come down and take on flesh, born to a peasant, humble, poor. He didn't have a home that he owned. He was mocked and derided and made fun of because he was from Nazareth. He wasn't what anybody wanted, what anybody expected. And here's Mary the same way. And so God takes a young woman. And women were not treated well back then. You know that, right? Like, they were not treated well. They were not respected. There's been a lot has happened in the 20th century for women, right? Jesus began that with this. You understand that anything about the reality of of us caring about women and and knowing that they're made in God's image and they're so important and they're valuable and they, they have significance, all that comes from Christ. The world doesn't do that. The world says might is right. It's the strong win. The weak are pushed down. This is Jesus who does this. And you see a picture of this in Luke, and you're going to see it all throughout the book of Luke because there's so many stories of women throughout the book book of Luke. And this is the reality of what our Savior, he takes those that the world pushed down and he raises them up. So, Mary is this no-name town, a virgin who is engaged to be married, who is a descendant, of, uh, uh, to Joseph, who's a descendant of David, and the angel Gabriel shows up again, and he tells her something beyond belief. You're going to get pregnant, but there's not going to be a man involved. You're going to believe that if somebody tells you that? Ladies? Somebody shows up, an angel boom, popped out of the blue. Who knows how he showed up? But here he is. And he's like, hey, you're going to get pregnant. And you're not going to have a man to do that. And what's your response going to be? Well, Mary, I think, in belief, in belief, says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Do you know what the difference between Mary's response and Zechariah's response? Mary basically says, I'm here to do what you want. I'm going to accept it, but I kind of need a little help here. Like, I don't really know how I can get pregnant when there's no man involved and I'm a virgin. So, she's not saying I don't believe that God can do it. She's saying, how's, how? What do I need to do? Because notice, she's going to say, at the end, I am your maidservant. 
I'm here to do what you asked me to do. I will do whatever you say. And guess what? That's the same thing Jesus said. I'm not here to do my will, but your will. Mary represents a picture of Christ. Jesus Christ at the cross, right before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, but your will be done. And Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to you, your word. And the angel doesn't shut her mouth. Actually, she is going to, the angel just goes away, Gabriel goes away. And then the very next scene we see is her, she, she has been told, by the way, that her relative, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby. She's old. She's old. She's going to have a baby. So Mary's like, this is cool. I'm going to visit her. That's what happens. So she goes to visit Elizabeth, and she is pregnant. And at the very, very early stages of pregnancy, you have to understand, right? Six months. And she has just been told by the angel. So we're talking the conception had just happened. And Mary goes, and she goes to Elizabeth, and as soon and, and, and John the Baptist is six months old in the womb, and as soon as Mary steps in the room, the baby, John the Baptist, is like party time. He leaps. The hope, my life purpose. The whole point of everything that I am going to be, it just walked in the door. That's what was going on. And Elizabeth, what does she do? She says, oh my goodness, the baby just leaped. But it's more than that. The Holy Spirit comes in upon her. And she speaks these amazing words with a loud cry. So she yells this out. She belts this out. Anybody around could have heard it. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is, the, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, what happens? Elizabeth has filled with the Holy Spirit and says, you are blessed. The angel pronounces a judgment on Zechariah and God himself pronounces a blessing on Mary. Can you see the contrast in the stories? An unbelieving priest, a poor woman who believes, a judgment on the priest, and a blessing on this young girl. That's cool. That's what the gospel does. Tears down the proud and raises up the lowly. And guess what? Guess what in all this stuff? When, when, when the angel had told Mary this, and I don't want to, I, I, I skipped over this, but I'm going to go back to it for a moment. Imagine that an angel had said to her that he will be great. Do you know that John the Baptist also, that the angel also said that John the Baptist would be great? John the Baptist would be great, and he said, tells Mary that Jesus would be great. But what is Jesus's, what is John's greatness? John's greatness is he's going to be a great prophet. What's Jesus's greatness? That he is the son of the most high God. The greatness of Jesus is his or origin. 
He is the eternal God. And this is the story. And so Jesus is greater. So you want to know what this story is? John the Baptist, he's great. Jesus, he's greater. And this is what we see going on. And so the the king of kings would impregnate Mary through the Holy Spirit. And this is important for Christianity because what we're every person who is born by a man and a woman is sinful. They're sinful. You all know this. You've had you have have had kids. You all know this. You know they, they. It doesn't take long before you start seeing their deviousness and their sin. It doesn't take very long, right? You can see it usually within a year. You start seeing it, right? You're like, I don't think you need food. You're just yelling at me, right? So, I mean, there's good reasons they cry. Of course, they can't speak. But my point is, is that everyone born is sinful. But Jesus Christ is not born of a man. He's born of the Holy Spirit. Somehow. Beyond our ability to comprehend, the God of the universe impregnates Mary using her substance. So this is what we believe in the creed, using her substance. So the substance of Mary, the egg, whatever you want to, however we want to think about that. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies that. And Jesus Christ, God, eternal God, takes on flesh and adds flesh to himself with what our confession says, a reasonable soul, a true body and a reasonable soul just like you and I, except the difference of Jesus, he doesn't have any sin because the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary without a man. And so Jesus Christ, God himself, is now in flesh. And so because of that, what Mary does is she opens up what we call the Magnificat. And this is where Mary goes. And and by the way, Mary is a peasant, right? The, the, if, she, if, if Luke would have written a song that Mary did, if she was a peasant, what kind of language do you think would be in it? It, like wouldn't, it would be like kind of street language, right? But do you know what this is, which is more of a testimony of the fact that it's true? This Mary is actually quoting scripture. The whole thing is scripture. So she is eloquent, but the eloquence she has is taken from the scriptures. It's taken from places like the, like Genesis 17, 7, Psalm 34, 1 to 3, 1 Samuel 2, 1, which is why we read that, Isaiah 41, 8 to 10, Isaiah 61, 10, Habakkuk 3, 18, Zephaniah 3, 17, Micah 7, 20. So this isn't, like, this isn't fanciful. Like some made up stuff, like some of the Gnostic writings of the early church, like that's like, you know, Jesus is tall as the sky and whatever. It's not like that. She, a young, simple virgin who's poor, has memorized scripture and let scripture come out to do this. And in that scripture, she uses all of this language about how her soul is magnifying God, rejoicing in God, looking at the humble and all that. So I want to, I want to, I want to wrap this up. I've gone too long already. So let me wrap this up with this Magnificat, what goes on. There are really actually seven things that she brings out. She brings out the fact that God not only took a woman, but a humble woman at that and caused generations to count her specially blessed by God. She calls herself God's servant, a bondwoman claimed by God. Second, 
God, the all-powerful one, has done great things for her. The one who is holy, completely set apart. Third, God has shown mercy to those who reverence him. Fourth, God has done mighty things by his power. He's dispersed and scattered or scattered the proud and, and those with haughty thoughts. Fifth, he's taken the powerful and thrown them down from their thrones and exalted the lowly. Sixth, he's helped the hungry and sent the rich away with nothing. Seventh, he's helped his people by being merciful to them and fulfilling all the promises that he's made to Abraham, to Adam and Eve, all of that. This is a song of reversal. It's a song that takes the proud and brings them low. A song that takes the low and raises them up. This is what God does. This is the way that God works. Jesus Christ said, Come to me, all you who are weary, who are tired, who are heavy laden, who have burdens on you. And he says, I will give you rest. He takes the low because they need him desperately. If you are low, if you're feeling low today, Jesus Christ has a word for you. The same word that he gave to Mary. Come, enter my rest and trust in me, the God who tears down the proud and raises up the humble. So the dawn has just shown and Jesus, the king of the universe, has just shown into the darkness of a cold, hard world that, t- that lets the weak just be broken and stomps on them. That's what the world does. And God says, no. No, that's not how I work. Those who are low, the meek will inherit the earth. Those who are needy, those are the people that I've come to rescue. And he does this by showing us Zechariah and showing us Mary. Mary, the mother of God. The theology they call Theotokos, the mother of God. That is unbelievable. But the question is, are you going to believe it? Are you going to trust the word of God like Mary, humble, knowing that God is true and does what he says? Or are you going to be like the priest and be unbelieving? That's your choice. And as we go through the book of Luke, I'm going to try to convince you that you can trust God every word that he says. And you can walk like Mary and have God let you see and raise you up because he humbles the proud. But the lowly he raises up. Lord God, I just pray that you would be with the people here in this room. That you would show them the beauty of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Luke's account that you would break any unbelief, that you would allow belief to come and allow each and every one to see that Jesus Christ, you are the one who does a great reversal. You are the one who raises up those who are in desperate need, the weak, the needy, the weary, the heavy laden. You are the one who does that, Lord God. And so I ask that you would break into hearts of unbelief and bring belief, and you would show your beauty and wonder in and through the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ that we've just heard from Luke. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.